We have been going through the sermon series, The Earthly Life and Ministry of Jesus the Messiah. And we've been going for quite some time on this, and if you will, this is somewhat the last message in that series. However, next week, I'm going to have, if you will, like an epilogue, so it'll still be within the series. But at the same time, it is not the last sermon. Because as long as you are a disciple of his, you are teaching and preaching that last sermon. Because his ministry continues to this day. One of the unspoken problems with Resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday, First Fruits, is that we concentrate on the appearance, the resurrected appearance of Jesus, and almost leave the impression that Jesus rose from the dead on that Sunday, showed his disciples he was alive, and then just kind of took off. But as we've seen over the last several messages, he has been showing himself to his disciples and others for an extended period of time. And in Acts, we're going to kind of wrap that up to give the, the full sense of that. And so in Acts chapter 1, it says, The first account I composed Theophilus about all that Jesus begun to do and teach, until the day he was taken up to heaven, after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. And so Luke, who wrote the Gospel of Luke, is now compiling this account, in essence, of the church history that we have in the initial beginnings of the church. And he's saying that he's made this account of all the things that Jesus did and taught, and that he gave orders to his apostles by the Holy Spirit to do certain things. And then verse 3 says, To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them for over a period of 40 days. So first off, there's a couple things that we need to unpack. Again, Jesus didn't just show up on Sunday after the resurrection and then departed. He continued his ministry and his appearances to the disciples for a period of 40 days. So if you will, if we take three days after the crucifixion, this is now the 43rd day. Pentecost is coming in a week in seven days, or if you want to discount the reads, 10 days, but between 10 and seven days, Pentecost is going to be here. That's the period of time that Jesus presented himself alive. And he just didn't present himself alive. It said, by many convincing proofs. You see, Jesus showed himself alive, but he did a number of things. One, he allowed Thomas to see the nail scars in his hands and his feet and to touch the side of his, to see that those piercings were him and he was alive. It wasn't another. He wasn't a ghost. He physically rose from the dead. We also see him making breakfast 
and eating and participating and doing these types of things, showing that he was not a ghost. He had physically raised from the dead. So much so that even when we call about doubting Thomas that I, re I call refusing Thomas, he even convinced him by those convincing proofs. And so it's not a matter of supposition. It's not a matter of hallucinations. It's not a matter of, oh, I wish this were the case. Jesus presented himself physically. He presented himself when it came to the scriptures and explained to the scriptures that it was necessary for the Messiah to be suffer, to die, to be buried, and to be raised again. He wrapped the entire thing of his ministry in this that I have raised from the dead. And so it was convincing proofs. So much so that these men who were afraid of their own shadow at times would suffer beatings and imprisonment and execution and crucifixion and burning because they had seen the risen Savior and everything had changed. It's interesting, in the calendar, we used to say B.C. before Christ and A.D. after death. And there was a change in the calendar because of the resurrection of Jesus. Now we try to deny that, and it's called B.C.E., before the common era, and B.E., the common era, C.E., the common era, trying to eliminate Jesus. But he has affected history because he has affected the lives of individuals. And so he has taught concerning the kingdom of God. Again, the kingdom of God. And gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the Father had promised, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now, seven to ten days from now. They will be baptized by the Holy Spirit. And Jesus says, I want you to wait in Jerusalem. Before I told you we we're going to meet in Galilee, and we met in Galilee, and I gave you your marching orders, which was to make disciples, baptizing them, teaching them all that I commanded you. And Jesus said, I will never leave you. Lo, I'm with you always, even past your lifetimes. And now he's come and he said, but I want you to wait because you need to be baptized by the Holy Spirit. And if we continue to read in Luke's account of the Acts of the Apostles, we will see that there are a number of times that they received the power of the Holy Spirit. It wasn't where one day they received it and everything was cool. No, they received it over and over again that they might continue to be bold in their presentation of the gospel and their acceptance of the circumstances. So he goes, I want you to wait. Not many days from now. 
So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time that you are restoring the kingdom of Israel? These guys are on a one-track mind. Ever since they decided they would follow Jesus, they were convinced about politics. We want Israel to be restored as a kingdom. We're tired of the Romans being in charge. And so when is it that you're going to restore the kingdom of Israel? And Jesus didn't talk about the kingdom of Israel. He talked about the kingdom of God. He talked about much greater things. It's kind of like us today. We're so worried about whether Democrats or the Republicans or the independents are in charge or who's not in charge. It's not about, because this all, as much as I'm glad to be an American, this isn't permanent. His kingdom is. And our focus should not be on whether the U.S. is a great nation or not, but whether the kingdom of God is being increased. No wonder the church gets distracted. They were distracted. Is it now that you're restoring the kingdom of Israel? And he's been teaching for three and a half years, plus after his death and resurrection, and even now we're talking about the kingdom of God. It's much greater it's much more important. It's more, much more long-lasting. Rome lasted for 2,000 years. Wonderful. And hopefully, if Jesus doesn't come before that, hopefully the U.S. will last that long. But all great nations and all little nations rise and fall and someone else comes, but not the kingdom of God. And our priority should be. But their priority is focused, again, on politics and notice what Jesus says. And one of the things that why I'm, because in today's day, you'll hear about, well, whether Jesus would be a Democrat or whether Jesus would be a Republican or whether he would approve this bill or whether he would approve that bill. Jesus never talked about politics about Rome. He didn't even say, you know, slavery is terrible. Stop being it. He said, this is the circumstances. This is the situation. Increase the kingdom of God. And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. God's authority will determine when it happens. It's none of your business. It's God's business. It's God's timing. It's God's authority. When he's ready for Israel to be the kingdom he wants it to be, that it will be the kingdom he wants it to be. You go and do something else. Your priority is different. God has the kingdom of Israel handled. Not only is it none of your business, it's none of your knowledge of when it's going to happen. But you, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. So Jesus, the reason Jesus is saying, I want you to wait, is because the Holy Spirit's going to come, and when the Holy Spirit's going to come, you are going to receive power. No wonder so many Christians live in such little power in their lives because the Holy Spirit has little impact on their lives. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall. You see, I'm a lawyer. And when I see the term shall, 
That means it's a command. If I wanted to be something that was permissive, then he would have said, you will. That's permissive. You can do it. You cannot do it. So for instance, when you go down the, the, the road here, and if you exceed the maximum posted speed limit, you get a ticket if they catch you. Because you shall not drive faster than is posted speed limit. You don't get sick. Well, it doesn't apply to me. No, no, you shall. It is a command. You shall be my witnesses. So what is it that it's a command to do? To be his witnesses, not to be your witness, but to be his witness. Well, what is a witness? A witness is somebody who has observed something and can then testify concerning it. You shall be my witnesses. Well, what were they witness of? They were witness of his resurrection. They were witness of his teachings. They were witness of his authority. They were witnesses to all of these things, and they were to testify concerning these things about Jesus. A lot of people kind of get witnessing just a little off. Because what will happen is, is that when we witness to somebody about our salvation, all too often what it is we say is, well, in 1947, when I was in a revival meeting, the preacher was preaching a hellfire and damnation sermon, and I felt convicted, and I didn't want to go to hell, and so I came forth and gave my life to Jesus. That's not a witness. You just told why you did something. You didn't tell the necessity for it. You just said why you did it. I didn't want to go to hell. I was talking, I heard the pastor and I got convicted. What you need to do is say, this is what happens in my life. I was a sinner. I don't even have to worry about not doing the Ten Commandments or not doing all this listed in the law. I got convicted because I don't even do what I think is right let alone when God tells me what's right or wrong. When I say, oh, I shouldn't do this and I do it, I convicted myself. I'm a sinner. And it was Jesus who offered salvation and to free me from my sin and my shame because he is the son of God. Because he died because he was buried, and because he was raised from the dead, I knew that I could trust him because I believed in him, and he promised that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. I'm a witness to the fact that I'm a sinner saved by grace. Not how I got saved, but why I got saved. So when you're giving your testimony. Remember, 
It's not necessarily the house. It may set up as for the context, but it's the why that's important. So you shall be my witnesses. And he says, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea. So he's kind of starting to spread out. He goes, okay, you're going to start there in Jerusalem. Because I told you that's where I want you to wait. And that's where you're going to receive power. And you seem to be concerned about Israel. So you need to go be my witnesses in in Judea. You need to spread the gospel that I died for their sins. And that I rose again according to the scripture. And that you express as my witnesses. You don't just stay in Jerusalem, but you go to Judea. And then he says, in all Judea, not just the parts you're from, not just the parts you like, not just Canaan, not just Nazareth, not just Capernaum, but all Judea. And then he says something that I'm sure was a little surprising, and Samaria. But wait a minute, Jesus, we don't like those guys. They're half-breeds. They're half-Jewish and half Gentile. And not only that, they created a temple so that people wouldn't worship in Jerusalem. We avoid Samaria. We will take the long way around from Jerusalem up into Judea so we don't have to go to Samaria because those are half-breeds, terrible, yucky people. They're, they don't even worship like we do. Jesus said, no, no. You be my witnesses even to the people you think don't deserve it. Because in reality, you don't either. It's not about deserving. It's about people who are in need. So you're to go to Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. Now, I've shared this before, and I'm going to share it again. That's us. We are there. Well, what do you mean we're there? Because usually you'll hear sermons and people will say, well, you know, we need to go to Africa or we need to go to Asia or we need to go to South America. We need to go all of these places because they're remote. I want you to think, Jesus is standing on the Mount of Olives, which is just a few miles, a Sabbath day journey from Jerusalem itself. He's going, I want you to start in Jerusalem. I want you to go to Judea. I want you to go to Samaria. And I want you to go to the remotest parts of the earth. Okay. From Jerusalem, how do you get to the west coast of California? Well, you can go two ways. You can head east. And you can cross the entire continent of Asia. Then get in a boat and cross the entire Pacific Ocean, a very large ocean. And then you get here. Or you can head west, and you can either go all the way across Africa, or you can go up and go all the way across Europe, get in a boat, and travel all the way across the Atlantic Ocean, and then get in some type of vehicle or something, and go across the continent of North America, and you arrive on the West Coast. We are, from Jesus' perspective and theirs, the remotest part of the earth. 
So guess what? God's got you exactly where he wants you. To be his witnesses in the remotest parts of the earth. Now, when we go out and drive and there's so many people, we're going, how can this be remote? Because everybody seems to be living here. From the perspective of being in Jerusalem, we're here. And so, if God calls you to be a missionary to Niger or Morocco or Peru or Brazil or Jamaica or Japan or China or Poland or Germany or Australia or England or France, if he calls you to one of those places, wonderful. But also remember that he has called you here to the remotest part of the earth. And we are to be his witnesses here. And if you can't be his witness here, how do you expect to be his witness there? And again, as I've shared before, the cheapest missionary trip you can take is next door. You don't have to raise any funds. You don't have to ask anybody to kick in to your missionary trip. You bake a pie, go to Marie Callender's, you pick one up, you knock on the door. You're a little scared because you probably don't know the person next door because we, ne we in Southern California, we know 100 people. None of them live on the block that we live on. And say, hi, I live next door. Here's a strawberry pie. I hope you like it. How you doing? You don't have to start witnessing by saying, you're a sinner and God has a wonderful plan for your life. You simply say, how's it going? Can we get to know each other? Then you get to know who they are and their needs. And maybe they're a believer too. You go, thank God, maybe now the two of us can go somewhere else. Or they're not. And so you spend some time being his witness. But it's not about taking your Bible and notching it. Because you don't save anybody. God does. You build relationships. You shall be. It's not you will, might be, you shall be. And be is present tense. When do you get not to be a witness? Never. Because even in heaven, we will be praising the fact that the Lion of Judah was a lamb who was worthy to be slain. And we will be testifying to the angels. I am saved by grace and I am here because of what my Lord did. And after that, he had said these things. He was lifted up while they were looking on and a cloud received him out of their sight. Now they got something else to be a witness of. Not only did we see him crucified, 
Not only did we see him buried, not only did we see him alive after that, and he hung around with us for a period of 40 days. While we were lasting him, he was taken up into heaven. All these songs about saying, I think I can fly. Jesus was just taken up. That's something pretty cool. You can start a conversation with that. You know, the last time I saw Jesus, he was going up into heaven. People might want to hear what you have to say after that. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. That's a clue. They're angels. And they also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Their statement is, what did he tell you to do? He didn't tell you to just stand there and look. He's coming back. And he's coming back the very same way. Now, I think it's good, and I think it's interesting that we study the book of Revelation, and I think it's good, and I think it's interesting we talk about the second coming and how some people talk about the um, rapture and all these things. And I think, it's, I think it's good for us to discuss that, and I think it's good for us to learn it. But the problem is, so oftentimes we get so wrapped up in our doctrines of what when Jesus is coming back, we forget to do what he told us to do. He told us to be his witnesses. And he told us, for instance, as often as we partake of the Lord's Supper, as often as we eat the bread, as often as we drink the cup, that we are declare his death until when he comes. So the fact that Jesus is coming is a part of the witness. But all too often, like these men, we are so heavenly looking. There were no earthly good. What good to be right in the doctrine of the second coming and see your brother in pain or hungry, or naked, or in prison. How do you say you love God who you don't see if you don't love your brother who you do see? And all too often, we are so insulated by our scripture knowledge that we forget to use that knowledge to be witnesses, to impact people's lives. And more than that, to impact ours. That we might receive power. So that we might be his witnesses. Next week, we're going to take a look at the implication of whether Jesus was who Jesus said he was and whether he, if he rose from the dead or not.
We're going to take a look at those implications. But the situation is for those of us who are believers. He told us that we're to make disciples. And he has told us and he has commanded us that we are to be his witnesses. The last time you see someone, and you know it's the last time you're going to see them, maybe for a very long time, usually the conversation is pretty pointed. And it usually doesn't usually talk about, you don't talk about the weather. You talk about important things. Jesus' last two times speaking to his disciples. Make disciples, be witnesses. Apparently, it was important to him. And he is our Lord. He is our boss. He is the one who has all authority. He is the one who has commanded us to make disciples and to be witnesses. So maybe we should take heed to our boss's orders and do what he says. But pastor, I'm not qualified. First off, notice he didn't say, you shall be my theologians. He said, you shall be my witnesses. So you tell what God has done for you. That may be whatever your life is. You're an expert on your own life. You're an expert on your relationship with Jesus. May not be a perfect relationship, I doubt it is, because none of us have a perfect relationship with Jesus. I came to faith at a fairly young age. One of the problems of coming to Jesus' faith in a fairly young age is to know how much I've screwed up after being a believer. So when people talk about, well, you're so self-righteous, I go, I have no righteousness in me. It's all his. So some of the, the, the others that we talk about are being great testimonies of people who live very sinful lives and then they got saved. And we go, oh, isn't that wonderful? Yeah, Jesus saves you no matter where you are. Whether you're five, six, seven, eight, ten year old. You're, or you're an 80-year-old has-been. That's the point. And I find it interesting because I've heard people say, well, I like Pastor X because he's an ex-whatever. He was an ex-alcoholic or he's an ex-druggie or whatever. And so I can re relate to him. Cool. Because I'm not. So if you, do, if you think we can't relate because I'm not an ex-alcoholic, I'm going to tell you this, I don't want to be one 
to relate with you. So I guess I'm out. But I do know what it's like to be a sinner. And I suspect you know what it's like to be a sinner. And if you've experienced the forgiveness of Jesus, then you know what it's like to be forgiven. Just tell them that. You don't have to be an expert in theology. Be an expert in what God has done for you. And if God hasn't done anything for you, open your eyes. There's a song that we sing, open the eyes of my, open the eyes of my heart, Lord, that I might see. So, or if you're the one person in the entire history of humankind that God has never done anything for you, ask him. I suspect he'll do something for you. We have looked at the three and a half year ministry of Jesus. We have seen him teach. We've seen him live his teachings. We've seen him do miracles. Whether it's healings, casting out demons, calming the seas and the winds, or changing hearts. And even though his earthly ministry is not here in his physical sense, Every day that we walk with him is a day to express the ministry that he has performed and is performing. And he has simply told us until he comes back, and he's coming back the exact same way he left. Keep on keeping on. Make disciples. Be witnesses. And all God's people said, 